Good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you face-to-face, and for those of you who are online, uh, we have a full house in here this morning, and it is a gift. It's a gift to worship together, to sing together, and to open up God's Word together. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to look at the book of Galatians with me, Galatians chapter 2, as we are in a series, um, before a series, uh, we're in a series entitled The Beauties of Jesus, and uh, come mid-February, we're going to start uh, a series entitled uh, New Beginnings Together, as we study the book of Nehemiah together, and then we will have uh, Easter season, finish up Nehemiah, and then, Lord willing, we will run into the book of Romans, and we will be there for a little bit. So, looking forward to that, and yet now we find ourselves just with an introductory series kind of helping us walk through the beginning of the year, and there's no greater place to start than to make sure we underscore exclamation point, remind ourselves moment by moment, day by day, in our houses, in our cars, as we gather corporately, we're about one thing. We're about one thing. What does it look like to treasure Jesus above everything? Not just on a Sunday, not just in an hour, but what does it look like to treasure Jesus above everything? When we're at work, when we're at play, when we're watching TV, when we're working through relational conflict, what does it look like to treasure Jesus above everything? For him to be in and a part of all that we do. So that's what this series is meant to be about. And it's also meant to push us as a church body to really think about what that means for us as a people. A people together to adore the beauties of Jesus, and to walk together in what I see as a new beginning together in many ways. Today, we um, are going to look at being a community of grace and the beauties of Jesus. Now, before I get there, I just want to say some thanks. I want to say thanks to Ranjur Locke, who uh, preached for the past two weeks. Not only did... uh, he had to prepare with later notice than normal, but he faithfully preached God's word. And as I listened week after week, my heart was stirred, and I was convicted, and I was stirred. My heart was inflamed with Jesus, and I just say thank you, brother. And I'm thankful to Josh Gallagher, who led us in our time of prayer. I'm thankful for Pastor Hunter, who led us through the baby dedication, and who led just the services as a whole. I'm thankful for Tracy sharing your testimony. I'm thankful for JD faithfully leading week in and week out. And I'm thankful to you guys for your generosity, for your prayers, for your constant texts of encouragement. Um, It was just great to see and to be reminded that we are a people, even though we haven't seen each other face to face for quite a while. So for those of you who are part of that encouragement online, we say thank you, both the Williams house and the Cordell house. And now I'm just wanting to acknowledge, you know, we had a plan. We had a plan for what this beginning of this year would look like, and COVID was not a part of my personal plan. You know, I didn't write that into my journal. Let's make sure and get COVID and and let's let's operate that way. So the good news is we can just rest in the fact that our God has a plan, and it's better than ours. It always is. (laughs) It always is. Even if it includes sickness, it always is better. And he's with us and for us, so we need not be afraid. And so, as we heard about uh, on Sanctity of Life, God's heart for the vulnerable, the one sermon we did skip was the Bible ethnicity and um, the beauties of Jesus. And so, I'm not going to preach on that today, 
But we will have a time of discussion after a service late in February, early March, when we are able to talk through some of those things together after a church service. But today, I want us just to dive in as we continue in this series, to dive into this main idea of what does it look like to be a community of grace, to see the beauties of Jesus. So I want to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 14 through 21, and we'll go at it uh, together. The Word of God says this, Galatians chapter 2, verses 14 to 21. Paul says this, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? No, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. We are saved by grace, Father. Your help, your intervention. You loved us when we had only love for ourselves. And it's a mystery. It's a mystery that resounds to the praise of your glorious grace. We are saved by grace alone. And we are a people by grace alone. And we have been given the privilege to live a life that communicates that we exist by grace alone. And so we're a community of grace. But God, sometimes it's so hard to live it out. To live it out personally, to live it out together. And so, Father, I just ask that you would uniquely work within us. Make us a people who are a community of grace. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I initially got COVID, <clears throat> I was laying in bed and I could not focus. The fatigue was so severe, I could not, I tried to read and I couldn't make sense of the words. <laughs> it was just like, eh, this ain't worth it, I can't, I can't focus for nothing. I, maybe, maybe my ADD kicked in or something, you know, I was just like, I could not make things work together. Week two... No explanation, really. I just started listening to a book, and it began to click. Like, I could process sentences and paragraphs. I was like, sweet, this is actually working. This is pretty good. Still was laying in bed, but I could actually focus. So God taught me so much in the second, third week as I was reading three books. Um, Emotionally Healthy Leader in Church by Peter Cesaro, a parenting book by Paul Tripp, 
And then Tim Keller's little booklet, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And what God did was he gave me time to analyze my heart, to consider how I find peace in the midst of anxiety. And he also pressed into my heart a renewed fervor that my home and our homes as a church would be healthy. Whether we have roommates or whether we're married, whether we have kids or not, but that our homes would be spiritually and emotionally healthy. I mean that for singles and married couples. You know, homes where joy is more common than anger, where love is more common than judgment, where believing the best is more common than thinking the worst, where listening to one another is more common than critiquing one another, where praying for one another is more common than arguing with one another. Where serving one another is more common than shunning one another. Where we're patient with each other, overlooking offenses, realizing we're in process. <laughs> we are not and cannot be perfect, neither are those around us. There was just a strong sense as I laid there in bed that God has given us a supply for something like this, but there was a strong sense of how far short my heart and my home falls of just being healthy all the time. I think that's the same for all of us. There's some growth that can happen in our homes. But there are victories. There are times when things are going well, things that we can celebrate. The falling short is just being on this side of heaven. It's the brokenness of our world. We're broken, messy people. But we have a Savior who comes to us and says, I am working for your good as an individual. I'm working for the health of your home. I'm working for the good of this church. You know something? <clears throat> what I realize is that healthy homes... It begins with healthy hearts. It begins with a humble heart. Healthy homes begin with humble hearts, and humble hearts only come by grace. Humble hearts only come by grace. It's a gift from God. I need Him to make my proud heart humble. So do you. So as I read the Word and those books, I thought about my heart thought about my home and I thought about this church. And so as we continue in this series and the beauties of Jesus, I decided to preach this morning a sermon <clears throat> on being a community of grace and seeing the beauty of Jesus in that. I entitled the sermon more of my prayer, Oh God, make us a community of grace. Oh God, make us a community of grace. And it's here in Galatians chapter 2 when Paul inserts himself into this church that is filled with some tension. Paul is stepping right into the fray and he pulls back the curtain to reveal what are some of the things that are foundational for being a community of grace. A community of grace. Can we say that together? Community of grace. 
What we see here in Galatians chapter 2 is Paul passionately helping the Galatians see what a radically new, special community he has created by grace alone. That Christ has died to purchase a new people. He's died to make us a community of grace. A community that doesn't exist because we're excellent. It exists because he is excellent. A community that doesn't exist because we are righteous, but exists because he was the only righteous one, and we just got to trust and surrender to him. It's a community created upon his goodness, not our own. And it defines us. It gives us a new identity. It shapes our lives. It reconfigures how we relate to one another. It's this word grace. What does it look like to be a community of grace? And Paul's point is that grace changes things. It changes how you view yourself. It changes how you view others. It changes how you live. And so today, my prayer, may Treasuring Christ Church be a community of grace. May we, it's not a label, it's a people. May we, Treasuring Christ Church, be a community of grace. And Paul is going to teach us for our hearts and our homes and in this church, a community characterized by grace, it means three things. It means being a people who know who we are apart from grace. It means, two, being a people who know who we are by grace. And it means being a people who live out what's been done for us with grace. So let's just look at the first one. Verse 14 Know who we are apart from grace. Verse 14 says this. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Paul inserted himself into the life of the church. What was that? Well, Peter, or as called here, Cephas, he's eating meat with Gentiles. Any Meat-eating Gentiles out here, okay? I'm one of them, thankful to God for the freedom. Well, he knew he had freedom because Jesus came and collided with him in the book of Acts, and he's just like, I've got freedom to eat what was once forbidden by the Old Testament laws. And so he's sitting there in biblical Christ-purchased freedom eating meat. And then some visitors from the Jerusalem church where James was the pastor. These people come in. And whether they explicitly come in and say, hey, we need to observe Jewish dietary laws, and that meant that the Jews would separate from the Gentiles and the Jews would have their own dietary rituals. Or whether they said that or whether they just started acting that way, nonetheless, Peter followed. Peter led by his example in that he stopped eating what he was free to eat and he goes over and he sits down with the Jews and starts eating there and he communicates something by his leadership. He communicates that the only way to be accepted in this community is to add the burden of the law to your back, Gentiles. You've got to, in order to be accepted here, you've got to observe these Jewish dietary laws. You have to become Jewish in that sense. And so Paul dives in, addressing, as he sees the situation, these Gentiles who now feel other, 
They feel second class. They feel not as spiritual as this group over here. You can imagine what that feels like, right? It happens. And this is where we arrive in verse 14. If you look at it with me. Paul begins to serve as kind of a gospel community referee, and he throws a flag. There's a penalty here. This is out of bounds. This is not okay. The flag is thrown. And he says, I said to Cephas before them all, because it was happening in front of everybody. I said to Peter, Cephas, before them all, now follow this with me. If you, Peter, though a Jew, that is by birth and ethnicity, you're a Jew. You live like a Gentile, that is, you eat meat and you're free to do so. And not live like a Jew, that is, solely obey the kosher dietary laws, then how can you force Gentiles who have the same freedom you had 30 seconds ago, how can you force the Gentiles to now live like Jews? That is, how can you demonstrate in this community that the Gentiles must put this law upon their back in order to be accepted by God? Why would you do this? How could you do this? This is out of step with the gospel. It's out of step. And Paul now begins to lay the groundwork for what it means to be a community of grace. And he anticipates the Jews' objection. Okay? So they just got called out. It just got called out for acting out of step with the gospel. If your heart is anywhere like mine, you might get defensive in that moment. But wait, I'm a Jew. And aren't I a little special? Last I checked, the Old Testament tells me I'm God's chosen people. Last I checked, I was given the law. All the glory and the covenants were given to us as a people. Isn't there some sense of rightful superiority to them? Paul, anticipating that objection, says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth. Yes, we are ethnic Jews. And yes, God's chosen people. Yes, given the law. Yes, and not Gentile sinners. Now he's saying this pejoratively. Because 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says that there is a distinction in the minds of the Jewish thinking that the Gentiles were unholy and profane while the Jews were God's holy people. You can just smell all over this moment. Paul is anticipating the objection that Jews actually do feel superior. They do feel superior to their Gentile counterparts in this moment. And that's why Paul says... The only answer is the gospel. Justification by faith alone, which comes only by grace. And that's where he says, if you look at it, he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. 
and he levels the playing field. But before we move past to the beauties of the gospel and the level playing field we have through Christ's death, may we not miss what is at the core of their sin. The core of the sin of these Jewish individuals is superiority. They believe they're supreme. They believe we're better because of our history and ethnicity. And at the core of sin is an elevating of self, a diminishing of God's and his, and his ways, and many times an elevating of yourself over someone else. It's a battle of supremacy. And here it is, I believe, the Jews are saying, I am supreme to the Gentiles. I am. I believe I am supreme, whether it's my history or whatnot. Friends, it's the sin of self-righteousness. So before we look at the Jews and we look down upon them, let's just understand what is at the core of this sin is the sin of I am superior. It is the sin of self-righteousness. Lest we think we never do this, we do it all the time. Self-righteousness is thinking of yourself as better or supreme. It can be that you look down on someone or verbally elevate yourself or you silently judge. Self-righteousness says this, I am better than that. I would never do that. I can't believe they did that to me. Self-righteousness forgets its own sinfulness. Self-righteousness forgets grace. Self-righteousness makes sin about me and my rights. You've hurt me and not about God and His rights. Friends, we're all guilty. Every one of us. There is zero reason why we should be surprised that some people believe they are superior to others ethnically. We should not be surprised that people think they are superior to others religiously. We should not be surprised that people think they are superior to others economically or educationally or upbringing. Friends, we have self-righteous hearts. We elevate ourselves all the time. Why do we get so surprised that one group or one individual thinks themselves as superior to another group? It's at the essence of sin. Elevation of self and the diminishing of God. It's right here in the scripture. Self, the self-righteous heart. The I'm better than heart is the cancer that is undermining the community of grace. It is. I've seen it destroy relationships. I've seen it poison homes. I've seen it sour souls. I've seen it divide churches. The heart of self-righteousness. I know this better than you. And so you look down upon them. It is why Jesus is so adamant in Matthew chapter 7 to firmly address self-righteousness. 
Look at it with me. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says this. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Now this is not, do not be discerning. This is not an anti-discernment moment. Yes, be discerning. Judge in that way. But what he's addressing here, he is condemning interpersonal judgment that is tainted with self-righteousness. I'm judging you with this sense of arrogance that forgets grace. I'm better than you. I'd never do this. It's, that's what he's addressing. And so he says this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? You can think friend, parent, roommate, spouse, children. Why do I see the speck in their eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye, Jesus says. Okay, this is not complicated. What's the difference between a log and a speck? Size, right? Right? Surely we're clear enough to understand he's communicating something about size. The log is big, speck is small. Okay, so we've got that. And he says, or how can you say to your brother, let me address the speck in your eye when there's a log in your own eye. And the words can't be clearer. It's the same thing that Paul calls Peter in Galatians chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus says, you hypocrite. You're saying one thing and doing another. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He is addressing the problem of visibility. You can't see because there's this massive log in your eye. I don't know about you, but defrosting a windshield is a challenge to me. I don't know what it is. Here's what I think it is. You know, you get in your car and you start driving, and then all of a sudden, this fog comes over your windshield. It makes sense. There's a way to solve this. But my brain shuts down when it's really cold. Because when it's really cold, I want what inside the car? I want heat. There's a note that you need to make note of. The way you get rid of the defrost, the fog that's on your windshield, is that you make it colder. You've got to turn down the heat, turn on the defrost, if you rapidly want it to go away, you've got to either roll down the windows in the cold air or you've got to turn it on really high and let all this cold air come in. Well, my body says, that's stupid. Like, I'm cold. Why would I do that? So somehow I think, let's turn it up to high heat and it's still going to solve the problem. Well, it doesn't. It just gets worse because, you know, my hot air coming in there, there should be no amens at that point, but there probably were. My hot air is creating the problem. And in my neighborhood, the sad part is that this usually doesn't happen in the driveway. It usually happens while you're driving. And so now the windshield is slowly fogging up. And then I'm like, oh, okay. And there's this one spot in my neighborhood that when you turn the corner and you're going towards the front of the neighborhood, the sun shines in. And if there's just an ounce of fog on the windshield, you can't see anything. It's a major problem. 
<laughs> it can, you can hit a person. You can hit a car. I mean, it literally feels like visibility has gone to zero. Jesus says this is the problem. Your self-righteous thinking, your inability to acknowledge your sin, your inability to have this mindset that your sin literally to yourself is bigger than your spouse's, than your roommates, than your mom or your dad's, than even your children. That the way you solve this self-righteous heart is verse 5, first take the log out of your own eye. What does he mean? We have to be able to sit and be with Jesus and get to a spot where we can say with Paul, I am the worst of sinners. Were it not for grace, I would have done the very same thing that they have done to me. And until we get there, the windshield's fogged up and you can't see. He says it's hypocritical to try to address your brother or sister's struggle when you have not stopped to sit with your own heart and gotten the perspective that you're your biggest problem. And I'm mine. And until we get there, we have no clue how much we need grace. And until we get there, we will never extend grace to anyone else. Instead, we'll be a, we, we will be guilty of Matthew 7 judgment. We'll be judgmental, looking down. And we will be guilty of what Paul is saying is eroding the church, and it is the sin of self-righteous superiority. Dear friends, this is not about your neighbor. This is about you and I. Healthy homes begin with humble hearts. And I just want to say that the only way we will be a community of grace is if we know who we are apart from grace. Who are we? We are self-righteous sinners. We are self-righteous sinners. That's going to lay the foundation for humble hearts and healthy homes and being a community of grace. Now, friends, you're like, that's not a fun place to start. I get it. I get it. Those of you who battle with self-condemnation, I want you to hear me. Yes, you and I are guilty. We are. But the problem is not in seeing our own sin. The problem is that many of us don't know what to do with it once we see it. And so we become guilty like the Jews. I just, if I do the law, if I do what's expected of me, then that will help this shame and this guilt and this rottenness I feel. And Paul now addresses that. Because a community of grace not only has the foundation of knowing who we are apart from grace, but it is knowing who we are by grace. And so look at what he does. He undercuts self-righteousness by taking us to a courtroom. He takes us to a courtroom. And we're sitting in there with a courtroom. God is judge. We're guilty. The prosecuting attorney has already laid out the case. <laughs> There's no defense for us. 
But what does Paul say? Their thoughts of superiority to the Gentiles are uprooted by talking about justification by faith alone. Our self-righteousness is uprooted when we acknowledge that we are self-righteous and that we look to him as the solution to our self-righteous problem. We cannot justify ourselves, for no one will be made right with God by doing what the law requires. That's verse 16. No one will be made right with God by simply having a better performance than their neighbor, by being more religious, by being better at this thing than they are. It's all a sham. He says the way you uproot superiority thinking is that you look at verse 16, yet we know this. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He gives them the gospel. He gives them the gospel. He's saying, your law, Jews, your law is good. But it gives you no greater access to God. Your ethnicity is great, but it gives you no greater access to God. Your law cannot change the heart. Only Christ can. And so, he's saying, Jews, you're exactly like those, quote, Gentile sinners. You're exactly like those Gentile sinners who have now professed faith in Jesus. It's an equal playing field because the only way you are made right in this courtroom is not to tell the judge how good you are, but it's to look over to the right at the Savior who stepped in and said, I will take the punishment that that man deserves, that woman deserves. I'll take that punishment. I will take the wrath that they deserve if they will surrender to me, trust in me. They'll be forgiven. The price will have been paid. And we're declared not guilty in that court. That's where Paul takes us. That's the only answer. Our problem is not that we're self-righteous Oh, that is the problem. But the problem is, not knowing that is not the problem. The problem is you don't know what to do with it. And we take it to the courtroom. We take it to Christ. As we take it to Christ, we realize Christianity is just so different than every other religion. As I was reading Tim Keller's book, The um, Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he phrases it this way. Do you realize that it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? Just let it sink in. It's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. Not guilty. It's the only place that you get the verdict before the performance. The atheist, if I'm do good, that's what's going to give me some verdict of acceptance. The Buddhist, performance leads to verdict. The Muslim, performance leads to verdict. It's just all over. And he says, all this means that every day, when performance leads to verdict, every day you're in a courtroom and every day you are on trial. That's the problem. You can never make yourself good enough but that's the aim with all other religions it's just how can i make myself good enough and the verdict therefore 
be rendered by my performance. It is not the performance that leads to verdict in Christianity. The verdict comes before the performance because it's Christ's performance. He's done it all, so we get it all by faith in him. We're made children, and it's out of that verdict that we live lives of love. We perform not to be accepted, but because we are accepted. This is the gospel. This is the remedy for self-righteous hearts. This is a crisis of righteousness. How will I be accepted by God? We are in that courtroom day after day. We try to put ourselves right back in there. How am I accepted by God? And we have to rehearse moment by moment. I am righteous by faith in Christ alone, not because I'm good enough or excellent enough. That's how you, that's how you and I deal with our self-righteousness problem. We lean on the righteousness of Jesus. So friends, this is what we must do. We must realize that it is by faith that we get that verdict. You see that in Galatians chapter 2? Yet we know that a person is, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the performance, not by the works of the law. Because the works of the law, no one's going to be justified. We'll never be good enough. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. Now, lest we skip over this real quickly, what is that faith? What is faith? It's not a work. It doesn't put God in your debt. Faith is said by some to be the empty-handed receiving of all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. Faith is not doing something for God that now puts him in your debt. Faith is the empty-handed receiving of all that God is for us in Christ. It's a resting in Jesus and his work for us. We don't have faith in faith. One pastor friend said, faith in faith is damnable. It doesn't make you a Christian to believe that, okay, because I believed, because I placed faith in Jesus in one specific moment, that all of a sudden, because I did some work, that somehow that earns my spot, and it doesn't matter if I trust Him now. It's just what happened in one moment in the past. No, we recline. We rest. It is a day by day. And yes, justification by faith alone is a declarative moment. Some of us know it. Some of us don't. That's something that God does. But here's what we do know. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Christ. We have an empty-handed receiving of all that God is for us in Christ. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. That means you're in that courtroom. You're in that courtroom. And you stop offering, here's what I got to show. <laughs> and what you say is, my whole life hangs upon that man's righteousness. My whole life hangs upon Jesus. And we get a verdict. We get a verdict of child. We get a verdict of loved. Where do I get loved? <laughs> Look at what he says down there in verse 20. 
Verse 20 says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am loved because I empty-handedly received his work on my behalf. Now here's what happens. We're meant to walk out of that courtroom and celebrate. The verdict is rendered. We are set free. We are made new. We are his. We are declared not guilty and we will be taken to the end. And therefore he will give us all the supply we need to love our neighbor, to be a community of grace, to not be self-righteous. And when we are, to be humble enough to confess it. Like we have everything that we need, but here's what we do. We walk out the hall, walk over, and we walk into the next courtroom. Tim Keller very insightfully says, and every day we have another courtroom. And here's what we're asking ourselves. Are we valuable? Are we significant? Are we worth it? And we spend our entire day trying to prove it. Look at me. Why do you think Americans struggle so much with telling what they do as the measure of significance? Hey, how are you doing? Well, work's been hard. I am, who are you? What's your name? One of the first things is you introduce yourself as I am this. I do this for a living. I have, it's just, we are in a culture that doesn't know grace and therefore doesn't know how to relate apart from performance. And so we walk into that next courtroom and every single day we put ourselves back under trial. What tells us we are significant? What tells us we are valuable? And we assess that it's the law. We assess that it's our performance. We assess that if we've done all of the things on our to-do list, then we're good. We're significant. We're valuable. If we've done this or done that, we're valuable. Dear friends, you are valuable because God says so not your performance. You are significant because Christ has said you are mine and I love you. Your performance is unable to give you that validation. That's why we constantly seek it. And we have to remind ourselves day by day of grace. A community of grace not only knows who we are apart from grace, but it knows who we are by grace. The only way, the only way I can live free from the opinions of others and the paralyzation of my performance equals my satisfaction is to remember grace. And so, if we know who we are apart from grace, that we're self-righteous sinners, and we know who we are because of grace, that is, love children justified in Christ alone by faith alone, then it affects how we live. It affects us as a community. And we will live out of what's been done for us by grace. This is what a community of grace does. I want you to look at verse 20 with me. He says this, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He comes and takes up residence. He gives us what we don't have the power to give ourselves. We live by grace. We live indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, And the life I now live in the flesh... In this body, I live by faith. Day by day, it means I trust you. I trust you to supply for me. 
I trust you that when today has gone bad, you didn't leave me. I trust you that when today has gone good, it was your help. I trust you that when this relationship is in great tension, I can surrender to you. I can follow your ways and you're going to handle it. I can trust that when I ask for bread, you won't give me a stone. I can trust that you're a good father. I can trust that you love me and that didn't stop. I can trust you. I live by faith. The same faith that got you in and the verdict is completed is the same faith that helps you perform day by day, not to be accepted, but because you are. And if we see that we are a community that needs grace, and if we see and are convinced that we are only changed by grace, then we will be a community characterized by grace. And here's a few things, some application. What does it look like to be characterized by grace? It means that we're humble and we're not superior. It means that we act humbly and not superior. It's addressing this issue of self-righteousness. C.S. Lewis says that you know somebody is humble not when they tell you how bad they are, but when they have so invested in you, it's like... You've even forgot that they existed. It's, it's like they're not even addressing themselves. He says a humble person is identified as humble in how much they seem to be totally interested in us. They were totally interested in me. They were listening to me. There's this sense of humility. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more about myself or thinking less about myself. Tim Keller says, it's thinking of myself less. It's just less aware of me and more aware of God and others. That's humility. He, he uses the analogy, it's, it's like, you know, like when you're walking, like when I walked in here, unless like I had a hurt foot or something, I wouldn't even think about my feet. Right? Like you didn't walk in here thinking toes, all five of them, one hits here, heel, you know, instep, you know, wow. You you just don't think that way. You're just living life. You're just walking. You're not aware. This is gospel humility. This is what it looks like to be a community of grace. We are less aware of ourselves and we are set free to be totally interested in Jesus. To be totally infatuated with the Son. To be so impressed with Christ that we see, like Pastor Ranjur said last week, like our aim is to get out of the way and to connect people to the groom. How do we do that? Oh, friends, I fail at that so much. I've confessed that I have an anxious heart. You know what anxious hearts are? It's like I'm just more aware of me than I need to be. But you know what a community of grace is? Community of grace is a place where it's safe to say we're not okay. We're not okay. And we don't blow it out of proportion. But we're also, we're going to walk alongside each other. Because we're not okay that sin exists. We're going to walk alongside each other. We know that this sanctification thing, it's not a right now, I'm totally like Jesus. None of you are perfect. If so... You would live by the law, and what does it say in verse 21? I don't nullify the grace of God for me because of justification where through the law, Christ died for no purpose. If you could be perfect, then Jesus didn't need to come, but he came because you couldn't be. 
So we can be a community that's humble and not superior. That can share the weakness. And when others share it with us, I forgive you. I'll walk alongside you. How can I help you? Let's walk to Jesus together. Dear friends, we're humble and not superior. Community of Grace is aware of our tendency towards self-righteousness. Friends, I tell you, that right there will set you free. If you are able to admit you are self-righteous and you ask God to make you aware when you are, you will find freedom like you've never known before. Because then your biggest problem is not your kid or not your roommate or not your parents or not your spouse. Your biggest problem is now you. And there's an answer for that. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. The Savior who comes to you and loves you. But as long as somebody else is your biggest problem, you can't fix them. The law cannot change anyone. Only Christ. And that's why a community of grace trusts in grace and not the law. It trusts in grace and not the law. I told you I was reading that parenting book. Dude, I was expecting this book to tell me how to parent my kids. And instead, it tells me how I need to grow. What kind of bait and switch is that? The book is entitled Parenting. It should be entitled The Parents Got Issues. Because that's what it was telling me. But it was so good. It was so good. And at the risk of potentially alienating those that don't have kids... I think this is illustrative of how we all deal with relationships in our lives. So I'm going to read this quote from Paul Tripp. I think it's helpful. But hopefully you can abstract it to how am I doing this to those that are close to me? Could be kids. Could be your roommate. Could be your parents. Could be your spouse. Paul Tripp says this. This means that you and I have to be willing to let go of those old human power parenting habits. We have to stop and hear this. We have to stop with the loud voices. The escalating threats. The subtle name calling. Words of condemnation. Ever worse punishments. Telling our children, or put whatever other relationship there, how much more righteous we are than they are. The silent treatment. And withholding affection because they have upset us. He says, don't get me wrong. Your children do need you to exercise authority. But not as the creator of change. This is what's crucial. They need you to exercise authority as a representative of the author of all lasting change. This means you quit trying to exercise whatever power is available to you. You hear that? Silent treatment, that's the power you feel like you have to really make that person pay for what they've done. That loud voice, that's the way you will really try to show them that what they've done has hurt you. We've got to quit trying to exercise whatever power is available to you to get your children to change or others to change and begin to think of ourselves as a representative. Representing the God who gives grace for change means this. 
in all those crisis moments, we're looking for daily opportunities to communicate that grace, helping others see that grace and modeling that grace to others. It's His power alone that is the hope for us as parents and for anybody else. Here we go. You don't get up every morning and shoulder again the burden of your Put in the name. Your children's change or others change. Rather, you get up and surrender everything that you are and say, I will do what I can today. I will do and say that day to the God of change who has sent you as a representative. Dear friends, hear me. This is why Paul says here. You are not justified by the works of the law. And this is how we act in our day to day to act like you are. I have the power to change you by my loud voices, my escalating threats, my gripping harder, rather than I'm a representative of the God of grace. And yes, there might be authority in parental relationships. There might be brother to brother, sister to sister admonishment, which is necessary and healthy, but it doesn't come from a self-righteous place. It comes from a self-analytical place that knows its need for grace. And we come together as representatives of Christ to show both God's good and perfect law, but realize that you are justified by faith alone. Justified by faith alone. Oh, how we have to be aware of how we have smuggled in its performance that makes us right. And somehow we do that in our homes. If you do what I ask you to do, then I will accept you. Then I will stop being so silent. Then I will actually treat you with kindness. No, 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 no. We're a representative of the God of grace. We have all that we need to do it. What does a community of grace look like, friends? It's a community that surrenders. I was watching the movie Doctor Strange the other day. Have you ever seen that movie? There's this great moment. It's, I just wish it would say Jesus and I'd be set, you know, but it doesn't. So you're in there and Doctor Strange, massively arrogant man, you know, he comes to this sorceress supreme sitting there. Here's what she says. He's like, show me how to do this. Show me how to do the mystic arts. You know, he does all these movements. Show me how to do it. She says, you can't beat a river into submission. You have to surrender to it. And I'm just like, so surrender to Jesus. And she didn't say that. So I just had to, you know, just keep moving on. But this is the issue. Faith is a surrender. You can't take your life and say, I can make this happen. It's a surrender to the God of grace. And then out of that, you live a free life. And so, friends... Community of grace understands its value in the courtroom of Christ. Community of grace talks more about grace of God than the deficiencies of those around us. And as the point indicates, a community of grace sees ourselves as ambassadors of his love. Representatives to our kids, yeah, but to our spouses, to one another in our community groups. We are ambassadors. We are sent out to reflect the beauty of Jesus to those around us. Dear friends, I pray that our beautiful Savior's grace towards us makes us a community of grace. Starting with our hearts, creating healthy homes, and making this church a community of grace. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I thank you. And I just ask that in these moments that we've had together, that we would realize Oh, how tempted we are to act superior to others. 
Oh, how our hearts have supremacy problems. And Father, I do pray that there is a healthy conviction of sin. But God, that is not where we are meant to sit. And I just ask that God, when we acknowledge it, we would run to that courtroom and we would find our righteousness in Jesus and we would rehearse that gospel that we are justified by faith alone and we would remind ourselves that if we were loved on the cross and Jesus did it all on the cross, his promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us, they are ours today. Father, please may we leave this time encouraged that we're not alone And we're not characterized by our sin. We're characterized by our Savior. May we leave this time encouraged that you are for us and not against us by faith alone. Father, bring repentance where repentance is needed. Bring faith, I pray. May we surrender wholeheartedly to you. And if there's someone listening that has never trusted in Christ for the first time or understood the gospel for the first time, I pray that they would repent of believing that their performance leads to acceptance, their performance leads to the verdict, but instead they would be enraptured by the beauty of Christ who says, yes, you're a sinner, but if you confess that sin and you trust in me, you can be made new, washed clean, set free. God, save people today, I pray. May many confess Christ today. And may the verdict lead to a life of love wherever we go. Right now, as we said, we're taking acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And this time is just a time for you to call out to God and ask Him to do a work in you or do a work in this church, to do a work in your community. Whatever it is that you want to ask, we'll just take a minute to do that and then we'll sing this final song together as a benediction. So let's just take a time to reflect and then we'll sing together.